Well, good morning, Christ Fellowship. Happy Resurrection Sunday to you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I hope it's 10 o'clock on Sunday morning uh, as you begin this time, because our goal as a church is to watch this together so that we can take communion together or as close as together as we can be uh, at the end of this sermon. As we start our time, let's go to our God in prayer and ask his blessing on our time. Let's pray. Our Father, we come into your presence this morning very grateful for the hope that we feel today, the reality we have of a resurrection, Christ raised from the dead, never to die again, the first fruits of a coming great resurrection. And we, by your grace, will be a part of that. And we praise you that your word tells us these things and encourages us to have hope, and that hope motivates us to live boldly for you. And we pray, God, that you would do that work in us. We pray Lord, as we look at your word together this morning, that you would glorify your name. We pray that churches all across this nation and all across the world would be boldly proclaiming a simple gospel this morning, that many who do not know you would hear of Jesus as a great Savior and King who loves them and who died that they might be saved and they would repent and believe. And God, we pray that you do that work through this sermon as we look together at John chapter 11. Thank you that you are for us in Christ. We pray now for the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would come and help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, obviously, death continues to be on our mind. We've uh, all been watching the headlines this morning, or as of this morning, more than 18,000 deaths have been attributed in America to the coronavirus. The media coverage of this pandemic continues to be constant and continues to be alarming. Many people are wondering if they're going to get sick. Many people are wondering if they're going to die. Uh, and the coronavirus has really kind of pushed this issue of death before us in a way that we're, we're not really used to. As a country, I think that we're slow to think about the reality of death. But of course, there's nothing new about death. You know, since the fall, the, the death rate for mankind has been 100%. So 10 out of 10 people died before the coronavirus, and 10 out of 10 people will die after the coronavirus. Ultimately, this pandemic doesn't change anything about our mortality. And yet, I think we can say that the intense focus that has been placed on this pandemic has really brought the issue of death to the forefront. And there's a blessing to that. There's a blessing to being confronted with the reality that, that we're mortal and, and that we need an answer for death. Well, as Christians... We celebrate the fact, and today in a particular way uh, is Easter, is Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the fact that we have an answer to death, uh, that God has indeed given us victory over death in Christ. So we're celebrating this resurrection today in a special way. Of course, every Sunday when we gather is a celebration of the resurrection, and yet I think it's good for us to have this day where we're not only we as believers, but then others who are not believers, they also see, see what we believe, see that actually there, there's far more to what it means to be a Christian than just living life in this world, but that indeed there's a greater world to come, and we'll be ready for it because we'll be raised. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful reality. Well, this morning we're going to look at an account of Scripture where we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. So it's a, it's a passage of the Bible that really points out the power and authority that Jesus Christ has over death. Indeed, it's a passage that teaches us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be studying in John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. We'll be reading that entire section as we go through the sermon this morning. 
Now, the Gospel of John is one of the most beloved books in the Bible. Personally, I think it's, it's probably my favorite book to read. Uh, just the beauty of it, the beauty of the writing and, and the intensity of focus on Jesus as God, as the very Son of God. It was written by John the Apostle in the late 80s or early 90s A.D., And among the four Gospels that you read in the beginning of the New Testament, John is unique in that it is written specifically to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, so that by believing in him, they may have life in his name. That's what John says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, This is a book that offers us eternal life through Christ. The book is structured, as you read through it, around seven signs or seven miracles that the Lord Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. Each one of these signs points to Jesus' divinity. And it also points us to faith in him, that we should be trusting in him. Well, in chapter 11, we see the last of these signs, these great miracles, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And in it, Jesus demonstrates his power over death. Man's most irresistible enemy is no match for Jesus. This is a long passage of scripture. There's no way that we're going to be able to say everything that could be said from this passage this morning. And yet in our time together, I want us to focus our hearts on Jesus's power over death. And I want us to focus our hearts on the hope that we have of the resurrection. We'll study this chapter in three points. The first point is that death is strong. We'll see that in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 11. The second point is that Jesus declared he is stronger than death. We'll see that in verses 17 to 37. And then third, Jesus proved that he's stronger than death. And we'll see that when we look at verses 38 to 44. Take your copy of God's word with me and look, if you will, at that first point then. Death is strong, verses 1 to 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. 
in verse 1 of this chapter, John tells us about Lazarus, a man who lived in a little town called Bethany, which was about two miles away from Jerusalem, and he lived with his sisters, Martha and Mary, but this man, Lazarus, was ill. Now, apparently, uh, the Lord Jesus, when he had gone through Bethany uh, in his ministry, during ministry in that area, he had gotten to know this family very well and had a really close relationship with them, probably stayed with them often. If you look at verse 2, you see that Mary is the one who uh, anoints Jesus for his burial by putting uh, very expensive perfume on him, even though John doesn't actually record that event for us until we get to John chapter 12. Now, these sisters had done their very best to care for their brother, we're sure. We're sure that they tried everything in their power to help him get through this illness, but eventually it becomes clear to them that Lazarus was in deep trouble. And so they did the only thing they knew to do in their distress. They sent a message to Jesus, and they simply say, Lord, he who you love is ill. Lazarus must have been very sick because you see Jesus, you can see it in chapter 10 of John, uh, he had just been threatened by the Jewish authorities with stoning. Uh, they tried to arrest him, and so this was not a safe place for Jesus to be, but, but they, in their helplessness, called Jesus to come back. Uh, they were desperate, and they knew that Jesus loved Lazarus, and so I'm sure they must have assumed that Jesus would, would come. But that's what's so strange about this narrative. And what's so strange is that Jesus doesn't actually do what we expect him to do. He hears the news, but then he, he seems to have this divine insight into what's truly going on in the situation. You see that in verse 4. He says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we expect Jesus to go and to heal Lazarus so that God will be glorified through this great miracle. And yet, that's not what Jesus did. That clearly wasn't God's plan. Instead, he does something very surprising to us. He, he waits. And he doesn't just wait a little while. He actually waits two whole days. Now, Bethany was only about a day's journey away from where Jesus was baptizing with his disciples. You see that at the end of John 10. In those two days, Jesus could have gone to Bethany, healed Lazarus, and then even returned. And yet still he waited. Now, this must have been puzzling to the disciples. Uh, they might have even thought that, that Jesus seemed like he was being you know, unconcerned or unfeeling, perhaps even selfish. Well, finally, in verse 7, Jesus lets his disciples know that he's going to return to Judea to help Lazarus. And for their part now, the disciples are afraid because they know what he had just experienced. They know the, the threat that it would be for him to return to that part of the country. And they say, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? In verse 8. But then Jesus encourages them with a parable. Look, a parable. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. You know, commentators, if you read through the commentaries, they will give very you know, different explanations of what Jesus meant by this parable. But I agree with those who are, who are really uh, understanding Jesus to say this, uh, my disciples, I am the light of the world. And walking with me is like walking in the day. There's 12 hours. There's time for us to do ministry now while I'm with you. And while I'm with you, you're safe. But those who don't have me, well, they're, it's like they're walking in the night. They're not safe. They'll stumble. 
This was supposed to be encouragement. It's a reminder to us that Jesus is the light himself. Well, in verse 11, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus had fallen asleep. Uh, the, the disciples uh, thought that he meant you know, physically falling asleep, as though the fever had now passed and now Lazarus was going to be getting better. But obviously that's not what Jesus meant. He meant that Lazarus had died. I do think it's a tender point to notice that those who believe, even when they're dead, the Lord looks at them as if they're just sleeping. I think that's a tender point for us to notice. But Jesus has to tell them plainly then that Lazarus had died. But then he makes this odd statement. He says this, he says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you might believe, but let us go to him. You see, Jesus had a purpose both for Lazarus and also for his disciples. There was a work for him to do, a work that would bless them. Well, for their part, the disciples were hesitant to go. That's understandable. But then Thomas says this, well, let us go also, let us also go that we may die with him. You know, it really uh, demonstrated a wonderful, even if pessimistic, loyalty to Christ. Now, there's, there's so much that you can say from this passage, but I want us just to make two observations before we move on this morning. The first kind of observation I want us to make is this, that God permits suffering to accomplish his purposes. You know, you see this so clearly in this passage. Think about the suffering that you see here. Lazarus clearly suffered uh, as a result of this illness. Ultimately, it took his life. We're going to see very clearly as we continue to study this passage that Martha and Mary, they also suffered. You know, they suffered as they watched their brother struggling for life, and they suffered as they watched their brother succumb to death. But did you notice that in this passage, the suffering had a purpose? John's explicit about this. The Lord Jesus himself is explicit about this in verse 4. He tells his disciples that this illness was for the glory of God, uh, that the Son of God might be glorified. God was going to get particular glory through this suffering. And then if you look back in verse 14, you see he informs the disciples that that he's glad he wasn't there. Why? So that they might believe God had purposes for their faith, that their faith might be strengthened. God was going to be glorified. The faith of the disciples was going to be strengthened. What it means is that the suffering wasn't meaningless. The suffering was, was deeply purposeful. And, and what we need to see from this is that's how it always is for the believer. You know, the suffering that enters our life, it's never meaningless. Now, Satan's going to come along to us, and he's going to say, well, you know, what you're experiencing right now it is purposeless. There's no reason why this should be happening. and It's just always going to be like this, of course. He tells us that our pain is arbitrary. But then when you study the Bible, of course, this passage is an example of it. You see that the suffering we experience as followers of Jesus, well, it's always deeply meaningful because God always has good purposes for our suffering. Our God is too good to allow us to suffer unnecessarily. I think that's something we need to cling to as believers. Our God is too good to allow us to suffer unnecessarily. And you see that in the Bible. After speaking of the joy believers have in their salvation, uh, Peter, in his first epistle, goes on to say this. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So did you hear that? Those two words are important, if necessary. 
Brothers and sisters, there will never be an unnecessary, purposeless uh, ounce of suffering in our lives. We may not know all of God's purposes for our suffering, but we can rest assured that he has good purposes for our suffering. He was doing many things in Lazarus's suffering, and he does many things through our suffering as well. I think this truth is particularly helpful in light of the pandemic that we are facing currently uh, as a nation and really indeed even as a world. So we're bombarded with, with all of the scary possibilities, the sickness that this might bring into our lives, perhaps even the death that might result from this disease. But we, as those who follow Jesus, we need to take a step back and we need to think about this biblically. What does the Bible have to say about the coronavirus? What does the Bible have to say about this illness? Well, it says this, if God permits us to get sick, he has good purposes. Now, again, I can't tell you what all of those purposes will be, but I can tell you that one of God's purposes for sickness is to do in our lives precisely what he intended to do in the lives of the believers, of the disciples. He intends to help us grow spiritually. I like what J.C. Ryle had to say about this. He said, sickness, we must always remember, is no sign that God is displeased with us. Nay more, it is generally sent for the good of our souls. It tends to draw our affections from this world and to direct them to things above. It sends us to our Bibles and teaches us to pray better. It helps to prove our faith and patience and shows us the real value of our hope in Christ. It reminds us that we are not to live always, and it tunes and trains our hearts for a great change. So brothers and sisters, if the Lord should permit us to get sick with COVID-19, he has good purposes. He will accomplish good things through that. His grace will help us through the suffering. And at the end of the illness, he will either restore us to health or he'll bring us safely to heaven. And that's far better. We can trust him. The second observation I want us to make and, and fits you know, more specifically with, with kind of this point that we want to make, point one, death is strong. You see that in this passage. You see the impact, the effect of death in the life of Lazarus and, of course, his sisters as well. Well, in this passage, we see that death is scary. We, we never read explicitly that Mary and Martha were afraid, and yet you can kind of tell from what they do that that's the case because they had tried everything on their own. Uh, they'd done, I'm sure, everything they could have done to help Lazarus. They tried all the medicines that were available. Uh, I'm sure that they had done everything they could, but eventually it became very clear to them that, that it wasn't helping, that he was getting worse. And so, afraid for his life, they did what they could. They called to Jesus and asked him to come. They asked Jesus to come help, even though they knew it would be dangerous for Jesus to come. There's a scariness here that that led them to do what they did. Many of us have been confronted with this. Death really is a a scary thing. You know, perhaps like Lazarus, someone that, that we loved has been very sick. And we've been afraid that they might die. I think many of us kind of in our quiet moments have thought about our own death, and we found that to be kind of a jarring, shaking thought, scary reality. You know, the thought of death is scary. Even though, as believers, we trust that when that time comes, God will give us grace. In this passage, we also see that death reveals our helplessness. 
Now, I think you see that so clearly uh, here as well. Again, think about what Martha and Mary do. They, they do all they can. I'm sure Lazarus fought as hard as he could against this illness. But ultimately, death was stronger than him. Ultimately, death was able to overcome anything that Martha and Mary were able to do as well. Here's the thing. Death is stronger than we are. It reveals that we are ultimately helpless. Now, science loves to make great promises to us about the future. It loves to tell us that we're going to live longer lives. We're going to live healthier lives. Our society likes to pretend. I'll, I'll hear these stories you know, pretty regularly, pretty frequently, that very soon, very soon, we're going to live 100 years or more. We're all very excited about this. And yet, year after year, what happens? Year after year, the graveyards get more and more full. You know, ultimately, death reveals to us what we don't like to admit about ourselves, that we're not strong, uh, that ultimately we are quite weak. Ultimately, when our time comes, we are as powerless before death as a mouse is before a cobra. It's that kind of a stark reality. In this passage, we're also reminded that death is universal. See, this is what Lazarus' death is here in this passage. It's just one more reminder that we also must die. That death will come for us all. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, death is pictured as, as kind of a veil that's been cast over all of humanity, kind of enshrouds all of humanity and covers them. Doesn't matter how important we might be. Doesn't matter how many possessions we might have acquired. Doesn't matter how great our influence is in our community. Death is stronger than we are. And death will come for us all. Now, all of this might sound morbid to you as you listen to the sermon this morning, but, but ultimately it's not morbid. Again, it's just reality. This is what this passage shows us. It shows us the power of death. Many in our culture would like to ignore death. They would much rather ignore death than to face it squarely. And yet the Bible is honest with us about this issue. And those who are wise will pay attention but those who are foolish, well, they'll just continue to ignore this reality. So here's, here's my question. Oh, friend, if you're listening to the sermon this morning and you haven't yet turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, I wonder, I wonder what you think about death. You know, I wonder what your hope is in the face of death. Do you have any hope in the face of death? A great many people are simply trying to ignore the question. They work hard. Uh, they keep the music playing through the earphones all day so they don't have to think seriously about anything. Uh, they try to get happiness little by little by making purchase after purchase after purchase. They, they're great at planning, so they're planning all kinds of things. They plan for vacations. They plan for weddings. They plan for their retirement. They plan for everything except death. Instead, they just want to ignore that. They want to pretend like that won't come. So is that you? Friend, even if you ignore death, death will not ignore you. It will come. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once. Others are hoping, others are hoping that there's nothing after death you know, even though their intelligence far outstrips any animal, even though they have a conscience within that continually warns them about the things that they're doing and ultimately is just kind of a forewarning of God's coming judgment. You know, even, even though they long for things like the true and the beautiful and the good, 
things that they can never quite seem to find in sufficient quantity in this world. Still, they just kind of imagine that they're nothing more than, than, than chemicals and energy. And so when they die, well, they're just going to go back to dust. And then that's all there is. And yet the Bible teaches that there's something after death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 again says, it's appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Other people do believe that there's something after death. They're not quite sure what it is, but, but they think about themselves and they think, well, I've lived a pretty good life. I've certainly lived better than other people. And so, you know, if there's a God out there, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll be okay. I'm sure that, that God will accept me. I'm sure that that God will welcome me into his heaven. But here's the thing. The Bible teaches that none of us are good. And friend, I hope you understand that about, about Christians, those who follow Jesus. We don't think we're good. We don't think we deserve God's favor. We understand, uh, understand ourselves to be sinners uh, who have failed to live in a way that's pleasing to God. That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And friend, that, that all there, it includes you. You're just like us, you see. You also have failed to live in a way that's pleasing to a holy God. Now, still others are hoping that God will forgive everyone. You know that one day, eventually, everyone will go to heaven. But the Bible teaches this, and this is a stark reality, but the Bible teaches that most of the people who have ever lived will ultimately not go to heaven. But instead, they will face God's judgment, and they will spend their eternity in hell. And friend, that's not my opinion. That's Jesus' opinion. Listen to the warning he gives in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So friend, what is it that you're hoping in as you think about your own death? I hope this morning that you'll listen as we share with you our hope. You see, as followers of Jesus, our hope is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our next point, our second point this morning. Jesus declared he's stronger than death. So please take your copy of God's Word and look with me now. Verses 17 to 37 is where we're going next. This is a long section of Scripture. Here we read about Jesus' encounter with, with Martha and Mary as he returns to Judea in order to, to help. We'll see how he helps in just a little bit. The narrative as you read through this, it's, it's simple. It's beautiful. Uh, it's so true to life. Now, this isn't the first time, if you know your Bible, this isn't the first time that we've been you know, kind of exposed to these two women. We've met Martha and Mary before in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke tells us just a little bit about their personality. Martha is, uh, is the bolder sister. And so as Jesus is teaching in her house, she comes to him and, and asks him to tell Mary, uh, to, tell Mary to, to help her with all the work because Martha wanted to be busy serving Jesus. But then Jesus told her that Mary, who was kind of the more contemplative sister, well, Mary was content to sit and listen to Jesus' words. And Jesus said that she had chosen the better part, and he wasn't going to take that from her. And we still see some of these same personality traits shine through in this section here. We don't have time to go into all of these verses in detail, but what I want us to do is, as we kind of look at this section together is I, I want us to look at these verses and see just kind of two truths that they teach us 
about Jesus, to focus our hearts on two truths that these verses teach us about Jesus. They teach us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and they teach us that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Let's look at that first truth then, verses 17 to 27, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Here, this is where Jesus declares that he is stronger than death. Look what happens when Jesus encounters Martha. Start in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. These verses, we learned that Lazarus had already been dead for four days. If you kind of work out the chronology, it's very likely that Lazarus had died shortly after Martha and Mary had sent to Jesus for help. But from Martha's response, you can tell that that she'd been hurt, that Jesus hadn't come more quickly. There's almost this this, uh, hint of reproach in her voice when she looks at Jesus and she says, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but did you notice that there was also faith? Look at what she says there. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you in verse 22. It seems to me reading this that there was a subtle hope in Martha that Jesus could still help, that Jesus could still do something. For his part, Jesus simply said, your brother will rise again. Now, now Martha thought of that as just him saying that Well, he'll rise again on the last day. You see, Martha had hope in God's ultimate victory. She was a true believer. But here's the thing. She had not yet realized that God's ultimate victory was standing right in front of her. She hadn't yet fully grasped who Jesus is. And that's why Jesus says what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, throughout the gospel of John, Jesus had been saying words like that repeatedly. He repeats the words, I am, over and over. He says, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, verse 48. He says, before Abraham was, I am, in John chapter 8, verse 58. He says, I am the light of the world in John 9, verse 15. He says, I am the door in John 10, verse 9. He says, I am the good shepherd in John 11, excuse me, John 10, verse 14. Of course, he says later on in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Each one of these Jesus's I am assertions pointed, pointed us back to the name that God had given Moses when Moses asked him who he should say was sending Moses to rescue the people of Israel. This is what God said. said, say to this people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Friends, each one of these I am assertions of Jesus that you read in the Gospel of John, it's Jesus saying, I am God. I am Jehovah. I am the covenant God who has always been at work 
saving sinners, always been at work in saving my people. But I think perhaps the most beautiful of these names is the one that we read in this passage where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you, do you know what he's saying? He's, he's looking to Martha and he's saying, I am the source of resurrection from the dead. I am the source of life itself. He's claiming to be God, who alone is the source of life. And then he asks her, do you believe this there in verse 26? And, and really what's an amazing display of faith, maybe not fully formed faith, maybe not uh, fully aware of faith, but in a real display of faith, Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Now, friends, from this, we learn that Jesus is in a class by himself when it comes to those we think of as the great kind of world leaders of various religions. So the Vedas of ancient Hinduism, Buddha, Muhammad, you know, the lesser founders of religion that you can think of, all of them came with a message. And the message was, I can tell you how to find life. I can show you how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. I can tell you the way. But Jesus says something far beyond that. He says, I am the way. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, Jesus is in a class by himself. You can't minimize him. Jesus won't let you minimize him. He won't let you think of him as merely kind of a, a great moral teacher or, or merely a, you know, kind of an enlightened mystic. It's far more than that. His words are far more than that. He says things that only God can say, and he says them effortlessly, as if it's self-evident that he is who he is. He declares over and over that he is God. He is the source of resurrection from the dead. He is the source of life itself. And here's the thing. Jesus backed up his claims. And we'll see that in just a little bit. I want us also to notice just kind of a second truth that you see from this passage of Scripture that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Look at verses 28 to 36. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So after Martha declares her faith in Jesus, she goes to Mary and tells Mary that Jesus is calling. And Mary does what you would expect her to do. She loved Jesus dearly. She immediately got up and she went to him. But then she comes to him and she can only begin to share her grief before she breaks down. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And that's all she can say because at this point she's evidently overwhelmed by her tears. And then here's the thing. In verse 33, you see Jesus' response to Mary and to the suffering that he sees around him, and it's so powerful. 
John gives us these two descriptions. It gives us insight into Jesus' emotional state at this point. He says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. Uh, the word translated deeply moved there in the original language. Well, it actually speaks of indignation. It speaks of outrage. It speaks of anger. Uh, Jesus wasn't merely sad by the effects of death. He was angry at death. He was angry at what sin had caused in this world. And he had come to do something about it. But then notice he also says that he was greatly troubled there. Greatly troubled. It speaks of a state of agitation, even consternation. And here you see the human nature of Christ come forward so clearly as he's, he's impacted just as we are impacted by emotion. He's truly human. The most amazing of all is what we read in verse 35. Having gone to the tomb of Lazarus, it says that Jesus wept. And the word for wept there really speaks of bursting into tears. It's not hopeless wailing, but it's truly weeping. It's truly weeping. So why did Jesus weep? Well, it wasn't because Jesus was hopeless about Lazarus. Jesus knew that he was coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. He wept because he was touched by the suffering of Mary and Martha and others. He wept because he saw the devastation that sin has brought into this world and that things are not as they should be. You see, Jesus wept because he wasn't a man of stone. Jesus was kind and he was good. And he provides for us here an example of what we should be. You know, we've been commanded as well that we should weep when others are weeping. Speaking of John 11, verse 35, one commentator said, This is the shortest verse in the Bible, but no verse carries more meaning in it. And I think that's true. So what should we take away then from this passage and what we see Jesus do here? Well, we learn that it's not wrong to grieve. Sometimes I think Christians are conflicted about what they're supposed to do when, when another believer dies. Uh, and, and they know that that brother or sister is, is now with the Lord. And, and so they're, they're happy, of course, in heaven. And so we wonder if, if we shouldn't be happy, then why is it that we are so sad? Well, well friends, we should rejoice that they're safely home. But we should also grieve. You know, we should grieve because it's a real loss for us. We should grieve because grieving is really a kind of a protest against what's wrong with this broken world, the loss that we experience. I really, really appreciate that insight that Matthew McCullough gave in his book, Remember Death. Remember Death. And I would just encourage you, friend, to get that book and read it. Remember Death. He said this, Grief over death and all its many faces is the only honest, truthful response to a world that was not made to be this way. Grief tells the truth about the goodness of what God has given us. It's how we agree with Jesus about the offensiveness of death's challenge to everything that is good and right and beautiful. Grief is not unbelief in what God will do. It isn't ingratitude for what God has done. Grief is simply honest, even Christ-like. I think we see that, friends, in this passage. There's another kind of observation, observation we should make. We see in this passage that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Look at his tears there in verse 35. You see that, that Jesus really does know what it's like to be a human. You see that, that Jesus really does care for his people and for their suffering. So he is sympathetic to us. And praise God that he is our great high priest who intercedes for us. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise God, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weakness. Praise God that we can go to him and cry out for help in time of need. So look now, verses 17 to 37, you, you see Jesus declare that he is stronger than death. Indeed, he proclaims himself to be the resurrection and the life. Now, very briefly now, a third point. Jesus proved he is stronger than death. Look at verses 38 to 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. These verses are very straightforward. Jesus comes to the tomb and he commands them to open the tomb by removing the stone that was in front of it. Martha, knowing that Lazarus had been dead for four days, knowing that this is a hot climate, that decay would have already begun to set in, tried to stop Jesus. You see, her faith was real. We see that it's real. And yet, again, she hasn't fully grasped what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But she's going to. In verse 40, Jesus responds, did I, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then he prays a prayer, and, and really it's not a prayer of petition or asking, it's just a prayer of praise. It, it shows us that Jesus had this ongoing communion with his Father where he's continually talking with his heavenly Father. And of course, the Father always hears and answers the prayers of the Son. And then after praying a prayer of thanksgiving, Jesus showed Martha and his disciples the glory of God. And that's what you see there in verses 43 to 45. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? The dead man comes out. He's bound, but he's alive. And so they release him. With a word, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. With a word, listen, Jesus proved that he is stronger than death. Imagine what the crowd must have felt as they looked and saw Lazarus, who had been dead, come forth now. Imagine the excitement. Imagine how startling that would have been. Verse 45 tells us that many of them believed in Jesus because they witnessed his power over death. Friends, this is a tremendous passage. that shows us very clearly that Jesus is stronger than death. But I want us to consider this morning... And again, that this is a special day for us. You know, we're celebrating Easter. This is a special Resurrection Sunday in the course of the year. Here we celebrate Jesus' power over death in a special way. You see, uh, Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead was a tremendous display of Jesus' power over death. And yet, 
We celebrate Easter because there's an even greater display. Yeah, Lazarus rose from the dead, but then, of course, he died again. But on the first Easter morning, Christ rose from the dead never to die again. That's what we're celebrating today. This tremendous hope that there is life that is stronger than death and eternal life. And it is seen in Christ who himself is life. And it is given to all who put their trust in him. So those of us who follow Jesus celebrate together today because we even now possess eternal life. What a tremendous hope we have, brothers and sisters. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that Jesus is stronger than death. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that we also will be raised with him to live forever with him in a far better world than this one. This brings us, this, this hope that we're talking about, it brings us to the gospel. You see, at the very, the very core of Christianity is this message that God is life. You know, the, the Bible contains bad news. The Bible you know, tells us that we were created by God, uh, that God wanted us to have a special relationship with him that would be marked by love, that would be marked by obedience. Uh, but our first parents, they sinned against God. They decided it would be better for them to live for themselves and do what they wanted to do. So they disobeyed God's command, and they thought that in that way they would become like God. They thought that they'd find true freedom. They thought that they would find true life, but ultimately their sin led them to death. And, and friends, the message of the Bible is that we sinned in them. And because we come from them, we've also inherited that same nature of rebellion against God. And so we're born not spiritually alive, but spiritually dead. And our spiritual death is why we do what we do. It's why we live for ourselves and not for God. You see, sin just kind of turns us in on ourselves so that we, we want to live for me and what I can have and what I can do. And, and so we rebel against God and we break his law and then we harm other people as well. And all of us have done things. All of us have done things that we know are wrong. And we know that they're wrong on a very deep level. This is what sin is. And sin is serious. You see, sin separates us from God. Sin brings us under the wrath of God. God is holy and we are not holy. So if we were to die in our sins and stand before God unprepared, we would face his wrath forever. And that is ultimately what death is. Death is separation from God forever and ever and ever. It's bad news. And yet our hope as believers, the, the, the grace we have as believers is this, that there is tremendous good news because God himself is a savior and he sent Jesus into this world. Jesus, the eternal son of God, came into this world to give life to those who are spiritually dead. That's why he came. He came to live the kind of life that you and I should have lived, but we failed to live. He always obeyed the will of his heavenly father. And then at just the right moment, he offered his life as a sacrifice on the cross. On the cross, he bore the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then praise God, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead showing that he is stronger than death. Now we have this tremendous good news to offer, to offer to you this morning. That if you'll turn from your sins and turn from living for yourself, and instead if you'll put your hope 
holy in Jesus and in what Jesus Christ has done, well, well then Jesus will become your Savior. Uh, he will give you eternal life. All of your sins will be forgiven. Past, present, future sins, all of them utterly wiped away. And, and, and then Jesus' perfect life, it's like God himself will just give that to you as a gift and he will treat you just as if you lived Jesus' perfect life. And then, friend, it gets even better because, because those who put their trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, even if they die, well, then they will be safe with God. And the day will come when God will make all things new. And their bodies will be raised just as Jesus was raised. And then we will live with him forever in a perfect world. That, friends, is the hope of Christianity. Uh, that, friends, is what we celebrate in a particular way today. So we celebrate Easter together. My question for you is, do you have that hope? As you hear that message, have you turned from your sins and trusted in that Savior? Do you have confidence that Jesus is your life? Now, friends, this is the Christian hope. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Christian hope is that Jesus is stronger than death. And because Jesus is stronger than death, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. So I want to leave you with the question that Jesus asked Martha in verse 26. Do you believe this? Have you put your faith in Jesus? I pray that you will do that today. Let's pray now. Our Father, we rejoice to come into your presence and proclaim with all of our hearts that we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we celebrate today in a special way because Jesus has demonstrated clearly in history that he is stronger than death. And our hope today as the people of God is that he has conquered sin and death and hell for us. And so our hope sure, confident hope is that we also will live with him forever. We thank you that we will live forever. We praise you for Jesus who died for us and rose for our justification. And we pray that you'd be glorified in all that we say and do in this coming week. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Christ Fellowship, we uh, are going to celebrate even more in a special way this morning. I hope that you've taken the time to procure uh, some, some grape juice and then some bread for yourself because we're going to, uh, in a way that's unusual, probably in a way that we'll only ever do once as a church, we're going to take communion now together even though we're apart. I'm going to lead us through the elements of the Lord's Supper. And, and if you are a follower of Jesus, then we invite you to participate with us in this. You know, we've been reminded that Jesus is stronger than death. We saw his victory over sin on the cross. We saw his victory over death on the resurrection morn. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of these truths, of these realities. See, the Lord's Supper is really a celebration of what Jesus has accomplished for us. You know, the fact that he willingly gave his body to be broken for us and to allowed his blood to be poured out as a sacrifice for our sins. This is a special meal for believers, for those who follow Jesus. 
This is a special meal for those who have turned from their sins and have trusted in Jesus and in Jesus alone for their salvation. So friend, if you're watching this video and and you haven't done that, then we would encourage you not to participate in the Lord's Supper because it's really for those who have believed. And if you're watching with us and you are a believer, then, well, then we invite you to join with us as we celebrate this great reality that Jesus has defeated all of our enemies. Let me read to you now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, kind of the words of institution that you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 29. Paul says, Therefore I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's observe the Lord's Supper together now. As we take the bread, we're reminded that Jesus permitted his body to be broken for us so that we might be saved, so that we might never experience the wrath of God. This is what he says. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together in remembrance that Christ has been broken so that we might be healed. In the same way also, he took the cup and then he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed so that all of our sins might be washed away and we might enter into the blessings of the new covenant, which most especially is to truly know God. Let's take it together. And then Paul concludes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord until he comes. And that's another reason why we celebrate today in a special way. Because not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but he's gone now to prepare a place for us. And just as he's gone to prepare a place for us, so he will come again and take us to be where he is, that we may be with him forever. May he be praised. Christ's fellowship, he is risen. He is risen indeed. May you be blessed richly in this coming week. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Amen. Amen.